Well, let's get started. Uh, let's take your Bibles and turn into, in them to 1 Corinthians 14. And we'll be looking at verses 20, <coughs> 20 through 25. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we uh, gather this morning, we thank you that we could be here amongst uh, the people of God in your house here to worship you and to study your word. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon this time. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us open ears to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will take your word and plant it in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to live by it and to um, do the good works, Lord, that are called therein so that we can bear witness to the watching world that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God and that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So bless our time this morning, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 20. Paul writes, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will, not, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So where we are is here, Paul is concluding really his argument regarding the spiritual gifts, because <clears throat> as we will see next week, Lord willing, when we look at the rest of the chapter, verses 26 through 40, Paul is going to conclude by giving the Corinthian church the corrective to the issue of spiritual gifts in their church. All of this, from chapter 12 to chapter 14, is concerning spiritual gifts. And there's, he's writing there because there's a problem in the church. And the problem in the church is their haphazard abuse of the spiritual gifts. They're not using their spiritual gifts they're abusing their spiritual gifts in the church. They're, they're exercising them without any, uh, without any concern over the benefit or profit of other believers. They're, they're promoting themselves. They're, they're chaotic. They're all over the place in their worship. So verses 26 through 40, Paul is going to say, look, you need to have order in the church because God is not a God of confusion. But leading all the way up to this, Paul has been laying the foundation for what the spiritual gifts are. So as we've been saying all along, in chapter 12, he gives you uh, the theology. The roadmap is at first he gives them the theology of spiritual gifts because he does not want them to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. He needs to instruct them on how they are to be used, what the source is, what their purpose is. And they are given by the Holy Spirit to each one of us for the profit of all. That's what Paul says in chapter 12, verse 7. 
And then he illustrates how the spiritual gifts function within the church by giving the illustration of a body with its various members. And each of the members must perform their function in order for the body to perform its function, in order for the body to perform it all. Then in chapter 13, he talks about how love is, as I've been calling it, the atmosphere in which the gifts are to operate. So you need to exercise your gifts with love. If you exercise your gifts without love, then your gifts are useless and vain, and you profit nothing. So after laying that foundation down for them, he goes on from there, starting in chapter 14, he starts to address the two gifts that seem to be at the forefront of their uh, problems there, and that is the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And in Corinth, the gift of tongues was valued above all the others. And Paul tells, you, tells them, it's like, look, no, prophecy, when you're talking about in the church, prophecy is better because prophecy builds up. Prophecy gives exhortation and comfort to those in the church. Tongues, unless you have an interpretation, are not useful. In fact, he says when you exercise tongues, you're not even speaking to men, you're speaking to God, for no one understands what you're saying in the Spirit. And then he goes on in the passage we saw last time, verses 6 through 19, how he uh, goes on there and says that tongues, in order to have any profit in the church, must be interpreted. They must be interpreted because, again, you are speaking in a language that not only you don't know as the tongue speaker, but that the people there also don't know as well. And he gives the illustration of an uncertain sound, uh, uh, instruments that do not play noticeable music, a trumpet that does not uh, make a discernible sound when calling to battle. He says if, if you do not interpret the tongues, you might as well be speaking into the air. Uh, and then he says, prophecy is better. Prophecy is better. He's, he ends that passage by saying, I would rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because prophecy builds up the church. Understanding uh, builds up the church. And edification comes through understanding. And now Paul picks it up here in this passage here that we're going to look at this morning like, as I said, he's concluding his argument here, and he's going to say, look, tongues are even, you know, since we've been talking about prophecy in tongues, tongues are a sign to unbelievers, whereas prophecy is a sign for believers. And he's going to talk about that in this passage here. And the idea that I'm going to put forth that holds this passage together is that in the church, it is better to build up believers than to shut out unbelievers. That's, that's the theme here. That is, in the church, it is better to build up believers than shut out unbelievers. And you've got, what is it, four points on your handout there? What, six verses and four points? How about that? <laughs> of course, it's like one verse, one verse, one verse, then three verses. <laughs> um, so anyway, he begins in verse 20 with the command to be mature. To be mature. Brethren... Do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So after uh, telling them that I would rather speak five words in a language that people understand that provides understanding and edification than 10,000 words in a tongue that profit no one, he then kind of backs off a little bit and comes 
now with a kind of a tone of pastoral concern for them. That's why he calls them brethren. Right? He's, despite all of their problems, right, and as we've been looking, the Corinthian church has a lot of problems in it. Right? It's not just the abuse of spiritual gifts. It's how they conducted Lord's Supper. It's how they conducted uh, women in the church. It's how they conducted um, cases of discipline in the church. It's how they conducted uh, divisions in the church. They were a messed up church. They had a lot of problems. Yet despite all that, Paul calls them brothers. And here he's kind of saying, look, before I give you the correction here, I need to pull you aside and say, look, brothers, we need to be clear on this. You need to be mature. You need to be mature. Do not be children in understanding. Again, at the end of the day, the the Corinthian church, they are believers. They are believers. And Paul knows that. Paul has labored at this church for many years. He has written to this church many times. He has visited this church many times. So he is well aware of the fact that they are believers. They're just immature unbelievers, or they're immature believers. So he commands them, look, do not be children in understanding. Now, I like the NIV's translation of this. It says, stop thinking like children. Right? Stop thinking like children. That's kind of the idea that Paul is getting across here. In, in, do not be children in your understanding. That word there, children, is the Greek word paideon. Uh, think of a pediatric doctor, okay? a doctor who specializes with children. And it's the word for like infants, for babies, not just children in general, but very small, very young children. They are, and what, you, what would you expect with like a, a two-year-old? Well, they would be very immature, right? And if you're a 10-year-old acting like a two-year-old, what would you tell your 10-year-old? Grow up. Be mature. It's okay when you're acting like a two-year-old when you're two years old. It's not okay when you're acting like a two-year-old when you're 10 years old or 12 years old. Right? You know, children, they require discipline. They require training. They require the word no being said to them a lot. Uh, When they grow up, you expect a certain level of maturity. And that's what Paul is here saying. It's like, look, you need to be mature in your understanding. Because, in fact, in regard to the spiritual gifts and all the other things that we've mentioned so far in this letter, they were thinking like children. They were the very opposite of what Paul calls them to here. Remember all the way back in chapter 3, in the section on divisions in the church, and he's, he's coming across and he tells them, look, uh, your divisions are a sign of the fact that you are carnal, that you are fleshly. And in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. And then he says, as to babes in Christ. So in other words, think of a parent with the children, right? You, you want to be able to, to talk to them as adolescents, but then you realize, like, no, you're still acting like infants, I, need to, I want to treat you like adolescents or teenagers, but you're acting like an infant. You ought to be spiritual, but you're carnal. You ought to be characterized by the Holy Spirit, but really you're being characterized by the flesh. You're babes in Christ. You're like new believers. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And then he says, even now you are still not able to receive it. Again, how, how you know, ludicrous would it be for 
a 10-year-old to be still drinking formula, <laughs> right? That's kind of the idea here. It's like they should be growing up. They should be maturing. They should be coming, and, and their, their theological diet should be expanding, but they're still being fed milk. They're still being fed milk. And that's why when you get to chapter 13, and Paul is talking there about love, and really it's, this is one long rebuke against the Corinthian church, because whenever he says love is this, the implication is that the Corinthians were the opposite. And when he says love is not this, again, the implication is that the Corinthians were the opposite. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. So Paul's like, look, even when I was a child, I did childish things. I thought like a child, I acted like a child. But then guess what? I grew up. I got older, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And he's imploring the Corinthians to do the same thing. In the letter to the Ephesians, he makes a similar comment in chapter 4, where he's talking about how they need to um, be mature. In chapter 4, he talks about how um, the Lord has given to the church gifted people and has, has um, distributed gifts for the building up of the church. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, starting in, let's start in verse 11, and we see there, and he himself gave some to be apostles, so this is Christ uh, he, gave, he gave to some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints. So God gave to the church these offices, these leaders, these gifted men, for the building up of the church, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, that's the same word there, mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 14, for the purpose that we should no longer be children. So the offices are given to the church to build up the church so that the church will no longer be children. And how are children characterized here? Well, they're characterized by the fact that they're tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So again, think of a new Christian, someone who has just come to the faith, who has not been instructed. What are they like? Well, I mean, they're, if they're not built up, they're prone to jump wherever, they, whatever seems good. They, they follow the bouncing object, right? They, they go for the shiny things. And Paul says, look, the church has been gifted with, with men to instruct the church, to build up the church so that you're not like that. So you don't see, oh, that sounds like a good doctrine. You start following after that. And then, oh, no, that sounds good, too. And then you start following after that. It's the idea of being in the church so that you're built up, so that you become mature, so that you reach the fullness of the stature of Christ. The author of Hebrews says a similar thing when he starts to talk to you. We don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews 5, he mentions the fact that uh, Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you might be thinking, well, who's Melchizedek? Well, that's the guy in Genesis 14. But when he says that, then he says, look, I'd like to say more about this, but you're not ready to hear it. 
you need to be fed, you know, you, you should be eating meat, but you're being fed milk again. So I have to kind of lead you up to this. See, if you continue to act like children in the church, you're not ready for the more substantive doctrines, the more meatier things of the faith. So he tells them back in, in 1 Corinthians 14, do not be children in understanding. If you're, going to be, if you're going to act like a child in anything, be a child when it comes to things like malice and evil and wickedness. That word there, malice, is the Greek word kakia, which even sounds bad when you say it, right? When you got those harsh k sounds, right? You know, kakia, that, that sounds just, it just sounds bad. And it just speaks of, of what is evil, what is wicked, what is inherently evil. He says, look, if you're going to be a babe, if you're going to be immature about anything, be immature about evil, right? Be immature in regards to things that are like wicked or malice or, or evil. Be a child there, right? You don't want to be mature about those things, right? right? You want to be, in a sense, be naive about evil. Don't be naive about things that build up in the faith. So he says you need to be mature. The word there, teleos, perfect, complete, built up, mature. And it, it just brings us here to the point that the Christian life is one of forward momentum. We need to be progressing in the Christian, in the Christian faith. It's not just come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, and then just sit back in your easy chair and wait for the Lord to return. The Christian life is one of growth, it's one of progress, it's one of forward momentum. We need to become mature. How do we become mature? We don't have apostles anymore, right? We don't have prophets anymore. So how do we become mature? Let me ask the class, how would you become mature? Study the Word, right. We have the apostolic teaching right here in front of us. That's Sunday night's notes right there. Sunday night's notes flying out of my Bible there. What's that? Don't lose no, don't lose them. <laughs> we need to study the Word. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy 3, when he writes to his young protege, says, Look, need to feed the people a diet of the Word of God. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, it's a well-known passage, we all know it. He says there, all Scripture is given by inspiration. Now, if you have an ESV, you'll see there, it says all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God, something along those lines. The word there is theopneustos, which literally means God breathes. So you can almost say that all Scripture is given by expiration or exhalation, right? God, he breathes out his word, and the word then becomes useful. And he says, look, the word of God, because it is inspired by God, is profitable for what? For doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that's that same word, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need a diet, a steady diet of God's word to grow in maturity. It's a life of forward progress. Don't think that you can just bank on your salvation in Christ alone. That is good and is a wonderful thing, but we are meant to move forward. God is not done with us. God is using, we are a work in progress. We are his workmanship. He is chiseling away, removing the sin in our lives, and maturing us and sanctifying us so that we grow in faith. He wants us to all reflect the image of God, which is perfect in Christ.
So now Paul moves on in verse 21 to give an example from the law. In verse 21 he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Now when Paul says law here, it's, it's a catch-all term in this case for the entire Old Testament. So sometimes when Paul says law, he's referring to the first five books of Moses. Sometimes when he says law, he's referring to just the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when he says law, he's referring to the entire Old Testament. In this case, he's referring to the entire Old Testament because he's not quoting from the Pentateuch. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12 when he cites this. And he says, look, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. So he quotes this to show how God judges his people's wickedness with confusion. In other words, if you're not going to listen to me when I send you prophets to warn you, to get you back on the, on the right track, then I'm going to send a foreign nation to you, and they're going to speak to you words that you're not going to understand. If you don't listen to me when I'm speaking words that you can't understand, then I'm going to judge you by speaking words to you that you cannot understand. So this idea of speaking in a foreign tongue is, in a sense, judgment, right? Again, we've, we've used this example before, but the Tower of Babel, uh, when God came down and confused the languages, that wasn't just so he can have a multiplicity of tongues. He confused the languages as a form of judgment. The people were acting wickedly. They were attempting to come up to God in their own works. And God says, you cannot come to me in your own effort. So I'm going to confuse your languages so that you cannot continue this project. And when Israel didn't heed God in a language they understood, God sent a word of judgment in a language they didn't understand via the Assyrians. Now, we learn from the Old Testament that God would bring upon Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness languages or nations that spoke different languages um, in Deuteronomy 28. So that's the passage that talks all the blessings and curses, right? So Deuteronomy, is this is happening right when they're on the plains uh, right across the river from Jericho. They're about ready to enter into the promised land. And Moses gives several dialogues to the people to prepare them as they enter the promised land. Because this is a new generation, right? The old generation that came out of Egypt, they died. They died in the wilderness wandering. So now you've got their kids plus Jacob, uh, Joshua and Caleb, because they were faithful. So, and Moses, but Moses' brother's dead. Moses' sister is dead by this time. And it's just Moses, Joshua, and Caleb from that original generation that came out. So now he has to instruct this new generation as they come in. And he comes in, and he says, look, when you enter the land, you have to remember, you are under covenant with God. If you obey the covenant, then God will give you blessings in the land. Right? He will... You will, uh, your, your, your ground will produce, your wombs will be fruitful, the labor of your hands will be blessed, um, the rains will come plentifully. When you go out against a nation, it'll be like one will chase away 10,000, all these things. If you obey my covenant, if you follow my stipulations, you will stay in the land and be blessed. But if you don't, then all those things I said will bless you will then be flipped on, on its head, right? The rains won't come. 
Your wombs will be barren. Uh, You'll be chased away by a small number of of, uh, wicked men. The land will not produce its fruit. And if you notice in chapter 28, there's like 68 verses, right? Only the first 14 speak of blessings, (laughs) which means the rest are speaking of all the curses. But among the things that God said he was going to curse the nation with is eventually, due to their wickedness and their hard-heartedness, he is going to start sending enemies against them. So in chapter 28, starting in verse 47, God says here, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. In other words, because you didn't worship me when I gave you all the wonderful things I promised I would give you. Right? God is a covenant keeper. God never breaks his promises. God is faithful to his covenant. But because they were not faithful, therefore... Now this is after a whole bunch of other things have happened. In other words, God is long-suffering, right? It's not like one sin and he kicks them out. It's like generations of unfaithfulness, generations of apostasy. Finally, it's like, so if you're not going to worship me, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. You will serve them in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Then the verse 49 is the one I want to look at here. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. God will send judgment on them by sending them a nation whose language they will not understand. This is also seen in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 15. Jeremiah there says, Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not understand, nor can you understand what they say. So God promised it in Deuteronomy. Jeremiah says it's going to happen. And lo and behold, it's exactly what happened. They were judged by a nation whose language they didn't understand. And the point that Paul is mentioning this for is to say, look, in your church... You're like, so what does this mean? So in your church, if you're exercising tongues without interpretation, so that no one can understand what is being said, it is as if God is sending the foreign nations to you to speak a word of judgment. So if, if you continue to use this gift in the church for just to show off without any interpretation, you might as well be speaking a word of judgment against the people. And again, in the church, it, the idea is that whatever you, however you use your speaking gifts, whether it's preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, encouraging, we have to be clear. And God gave us a clear book, right? God gave us a clear book. The Bible is clear. It's clear because it was inspired by God, and he made it clear. He's able to make it clear to us. Now, we also say, you know, in the Reformed tradition, says, that while the Bible is clear, it's not equally clear in all its parts, which is why you need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. But whatever the case may be, the Bible is clear where it needs to be clear, and it's clear in other points, points too if you do the study and you, you know, compare Scripture with Scripture. There's a, an ironic word that is used to describe this. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. And you're like, what does that mean? It means clear. Why don't you just say the word clear? I don't know, because I didn't come up with the word. 
It was some fancy word that means clear. It's like you pick the most unclear word to mean clear. <laughs> you could just say, hey, it's clear. No, it's perspicuous. Whatever. <laughs> but the point is, is that the Bible is clear, but in our sin and unbelief, right, we can make what is clear obscure. Right? The, the word of God is clear, but it is not clear to those who are unbelievers. That's why Paul says earlier in chapter 2, the natural man does not understand the things of God. Not that he can't read the words and like, oh, this is a foreign language. No, he can't understand because it's spiritual and he's natural. Right? The word of God is meant to be read with the power of the Holy Spirit and he is an unconverted person. So he can read it, understand it, and he'll just reject it. So the Bible is clear. We need to be clear in the church as well. So now Paul comes to his conclusion. You see that therefore in verse 22. So he says, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now this is coming out of that quotation that he says uh, from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. He concludes from that that tongues, and again, tongues without interpretation, are a sign. They are, they are a semion, something that points to a reality. And they're a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now you may be thinking, well, what, what, what about in Acts 2? Right? I mean, you had the disciples gathered together in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday, and the Spirit fills them, and they begin to speak in languages unknown, and then those who come from all over the place, all over the known world, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, they hear and they understand. So I thought the tongues were a sign for the unbeliever, so that they could come to faith. But that's not what he says here. No, the tongues here are a sign of judgment. Why? Because the proclamation of the wonderful works of God is concealed. When you're speaking in a tongue without interpretation, what you're saying is concealed to the hearers. The reason why they were able to understand in Acts chapter 2 is because the languages that the apostles were speaking was known to those who were there. They didn't need an interpreter because they understood the language. But in the Corinthian context, the, whenever someone speaks in a tongue, it's in a language that no one knows. So when you speak in a tongue, when you're speaking to God, and you're praying forth the wonderful works of God, you are doing so in, in a way that is concealed and that is hidden from those who do not believe. In other words, tongues then confirm the unbelievers in their unbelief. But he says on the flip side, look, prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Why? Because it's verse... 14, chapter 14, verse 3 says, The one who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He is building up the church. It is a sign for the believer. He is bringing comfort and edification and exhortation to the church. So now, finally, Paul will apply this uh, conclusion because how does this notion of tongues and prophecy being a sign play out? Well, he's, he uh, shows us in verses 23 through 25. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? If you have a New King James 
Uh, literally, you know, you've got a footnote there that says insane. <laughs> they will think you're insane. What does ESV say? Out of your mind? Okay. Uh, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So if tongues are valued in the church like the Corinthians were doing over prophecy, and an unbeliever or uninformed, that's that same word we saw in verse uh, 16, the idiot, (laughs) the idiotes, uh, the uninformed, the ignorant. If they come into your church and you're all speaking in tongues, now this is hypothetical, right? Because remember earlier Paul says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer was no. But he's like, look, in the case... For the sake of argument, suppose everyone is speaking in tongues in the church and you've got an uninformed person, perhaps someone who is a seeker, or you've got an unbeliever and they walk in and they hear you mumbling about in a language that no one knows, what are they going to think? You're crazy, right? It's like if you're flipping through the, the, the satellite channels and you get to the section of all the religious channels, right, and you get like... Trinity Broadcasting Network or Dayspring or some of these other channels and you got guys like Kenneth Copeland on there or Benny Hinn and all sorts of crazy things are going on. I'm a believer. I see that stuff. I look at that and say, they're crazy. That, that's insane. That's not church. That's some kind of show that's going on there. And if I'm saying that, imagine what the unbeliever, I mean the unbeliever mocks Christianity no matter what. He doesn't need an excuse to mock Christianity. But if you're going to give him one, Go ahead and just speak uninterpreted tongues in your church. The unbeliever is going to think you're nuts, you're crazy. And then he says, look, but if all prophesy. So now change the scenario. What if, again, hypothetical, because not all prophesy in the church, but if all prophesy and then you've got that same unbeliever, that same uninformed person comes in, and they hear now, guess what? They're hearing in a language that they understand and... They are convicted and they are convinced. That word convince, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word alenko, which is, it's, it's like they're refuted. It's like when you shut the mouths of unbelievers with, with, the, with an argument from God. You, 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 you convincingly destroy their arguments. They are refuted. They are, they are shut down. And then they are convicted. That's the word judge, anakrino. So... They come in, they hear the, pe- the church prophesying, and the unbeliever then is, is not only convinced in his heart, he is convicted of his sin, and then guess what? Chapter, uh, verse 25, he says, the secrets of his heart are revealed. And then he falls on his face, and he worships God, and reports that God is truly there. So prophesying in the church has a secondary function. Not only is it a sign for, of comfort and exhortation for the believer, but if there's an unbeliever there, he will perhaps be converted when he hears in his own language the wonderful works of God, when he hears these words of encouragement. Again, we don't have prophets, we don't have apostles anymore, but we still have God's word. And when God's word is proclaimed faithfully in the church, yes, it builds up the believers. And that's the primary goal of the church is for the believers. But you bring an unbeliever in and they hear the gospel They are convinced and they are convicted in their hearts. 
some examples of this in the Bible. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is Jesus' encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. So Philip sees Jesus, and then he goes and tells Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, hey, come and see. Yeah, I'll prove it to you. Just come and see. And then Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him. This is verse 47 of chapter 1. And Jesus says to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael says, How do you know me? And then Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So in that little word of prophecy, right, the word of Jesus convinces and convicted Nathaniel, because what does he say after that? Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. One word of Jesus, and he was convicted and convinced. Think about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, when they start talking about worship. And Jesus is like, let's stop talking about worship, let's start talking about you. And then he tells her everything about her life, right? It's like, uh, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. And then she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) You're like, yeah, you think? Of course I'm a prophet. I'm more than that. And then what do we see in verse 29? She runs into the town and tells the people, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She was convinced, and she was convicted in her heart. And what did she do? She ran into the town and told all the people in the town, And why is this so? Because as the author of Hebrews says about the Word of God in chapter 4, the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is like a sword. Right? Chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who who must give an account. The Word of God is powerful, right? It's not just words on a page. This is not just any old book, right? Have you ever read through the Word of God and come across a passage and said, wow, I needed to hear that, or that really spoke to me this day, or I'm convicted because I was... I had the sin in my heart, and then you, you read a passage that spoke exactly to that issue, and you, you sensed the power of the Word of God convicting you at that moment. Or perhaps you're down in heart, perhaps you're discouraged for some reason, you're reading through the Psalms, and you see David praising forth God, and it just lifts up your spirits. And you're like, in Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise Him. The Word of God pierces. It's powerful. It's not, it's not just words on a page. And I, I encourage you, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. We still have the reading plans out there. You could start them anytime. It doesn't have to be on January 1st. You could start them anytime. Or, or pick up the Ligonier uh, magazine there. They have devotions daily, and they have Bible readings throughout the year. Read the Word of God because it is powerful. So prophecy, back to 1 Corinthians, prophecy not only exhorts believers, but brings the unbelievers to their knees. And that's 
how Paul concludes this section. And as I said, this is the, this sort of like the conclusion of his argument in this passage, because from verses 26 through 40, now he's going to take everything he said, and he's going to now apply it to their situation, their exact situation in that church. But again, the point here is that in the church, it is better to build up believers than shut out unbelievers. And, and the idea of the tongues without interpretation shuts out the unbeliever. They, are, they, are not, you know, they, they do not hear anything that would convince or convict them. That's why Paul says, look, it is better to prophesy in the church. It is better to prophesy in the church because not only does prophecy build up the believer, but it also convinces and convicts the unbeliever. So next time, Lord willing, on the 25th, we will look at verses 26 through 40 and finish chapter 14. And then comes the fun part. Of course, that will be in two weeks because I'll, I'll be gone the second. But the fun part, I can't wait to get to chapter 15.